Hey everybody, welcome to the 119th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show we have John E. Swan. He is the author of Any Way to Elsewhere and also the guy who runs Polynerve Media. I'm sure you're going to like this interview that we have together. Real quick, some quick housekeeping uh, on Broken River Books News. Coyote Songs by Gabino Iglesias is now available. If you enjoyed Zero Saints, you will love Coyote Songs. So go over to Amazon, pick up John E. Swan's Anyway to Elsewhere. But while you're at it, go ahead and throw Gabino Iglesias uh, Coyote Songs in the cart there. We'll have Gabino on soon to talk about that. I'm sure that that will be a good interview as well. All right, that's all the promotion I'm going to do for today. Without further ado, please do enjoy this 119th episode with John E. Swan. All right, John, thank you for being on the JDO Show. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Um, so since this is your first time on the show, I've uh, been trying to get a little bit more structured with how I do this. So <laughs> I thought it would be uh, pertinent for you to like introduce yourself, kind of tell the listeners what you're all about and then we can kind of rock and roll from there right on yeah i'm uh my name is john johnny swan uh, i just had my first book come out uh it comes out later this month on a small press that i started running with a friend that i used to run a record label with um i play in a couple bands mostly trying to veer over to the writing side of things though um there's not too much else going on though. I mostly just hang out in the house and uh, and format books, edit books, read books. Cool. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to talk about that transition from uh, record label, or not even transition, but just like starting out with record labels and moving into books. But I guess I'll start even further back with that. When did you start playing in bands? Oh man, uh, I think I was 13 when I started my first band. Tight. And like. I like didn't know you had to tune a guitar, huh, yeah. so so it was uh, that was experimental and fun. Um, but I was probably playing shows when I was like 15, 16 years old, and then in my early 20s I started a record label called Berserk Records uh, out of Chicago. Um, what exactly type of music were you playing? <laughs> I've always primarily played punk rock and uh, and indie music. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the label was kind of like all over the place, just alternative in general. Um, the one thing we never got to breach was hip hop. That was kind of a regret. But uh, for the most part, like everything was different, but everything fit together. So we did like a lot of cassettes and vinyl and stuff. That's cool. Yeah, I was gonna, that was my next question was what exactly is involved in sort of setting up a record label? I don't know, man. I'm still learning. <laughs> um, the, well, the way that we always did it is we were kind of just trying to, um, we were kind of, I think, I think we've always been trying to kind of capture our youth, okay. right? Like, like um, I remember being like a kid and like holding cassettes and like, I didn't grow up on vinyl, but I remember my dad showing me vinyl records and that being really special to me. So like wanting to recreate those things and find bands that bred in us the excitement that we had when we were teenagers. Um, so it was all about that. And then, and then just trying to like, look at like record covers that we liked and trying to like make that happen. Mm -hmm. That's cool, man. Yeah. So what kind of got you from the recording side to the writing side? Uh, honestly, it was kind of pettiness. Um, I was, I went away, (laughs) 
I went away to college and I couldn't get my bandmates at the time to come. I didn't live that far away. It was like an hour. And I like, could never get them to come by to, to uh, practice or, or do any writing sessions or anything. And I had just started reading a lot of Vonnegut and Bukowski. And I, with Vonnegut, I was like, this is really cool. I wish I could do that. And then when I read Bukowski, I was like, oh, I can do that. That's yeah. super easy. Right. Um, so I started writing like these really Bukowski-esque stories. And I realized, like, oh, I don't need anybody to like come over and help me with this. I can do it myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was kind of why I was interested in writing. But after college, I got back into the recording side of things and like, that's why it took me like six years to write a novel uh, because I was just constantly playing in bands and like running the record label. And then uh, my girlfriend and I moved to uh, Milwaukee recently and I was like, I'll get back to the book. I think that's when you got the edits to me. It was like perfect timing. What uh, brought you to Milwaukee? I don't know. Um, <laughs> had, been, had been in the Chicago suburbs for a while. We were living... We were living like almost like right between Chicago and Milwaukee. So for us coming up, it was like you'd either go to Milwaukee for shows or you'd go to Chicago for shows. I spent all my time in Chicago, so I was like, let's go check out Milwaukee for a little while. Uh, it's been pretty cool so far, though. I like it. Is it like cheaper to live there? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, Dude, it's a that lot. That's so important. It's so important for artists. That's why I moved to El Paso. Um, I really like the city a bunch, but even more than I like the city, I like not having to pay $1,500 a month for a closet in Portland. So <laughs> it's just one of those, it's like I live in a house now and I pay fucking, God, less than half of what I paid to live in a yeah. in a studio, dude. It's just for artists, I feel like there has to, most artists move to New York, Chicago, LA, things like that to make connections. But my thought process was, you're not going to spend most of your life networking. You're going to spend most of your life living. So to me, it just makes sense artistically to move to a place like Milwaukee or a place like El Paso and then fucking fly out to the big cities and have a weekend sure. where you, you know, go out to bars and hang out with people and do the networking stuff. I feel like it would be about the same ratio as actually living there. The The cool thing about Milwaukee is it like it is cheap but it also is still a city so like if you do want to go out and network i mean we live in we live like kind of far from the downtown area but it's only like a 20 minute drive to go to like a reading or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. go out and meet people um but yeah that was that was exactly my thing i was like i you know i want an apartment where i have a room that i sleep in and then a room that i work in and i have this the room that i'm in right now is like this is where i write everything this is where i record stuff this is obviously where I'm doing this podcast right now. Um, I'm just like super thankful just to have this small space. Just this one room is great to have. Yeah, it's a, it's the little things. I honestly don't know how somebody could live in New York, for example. The, these tiny cramped apartments and all the noise and horn honking. I live out in the middle of the desert and mm -hmm. it's pretty chill. But I want to kind of go back to when you said that you started writing because of pettiness because, <laughs> dude, no, that hits me um, really hard. And I think that it probably hits most people listening to this who are also writers. I feel like most writers start uh, because they are, in a weird sense, kind of fiercely independent. So for me personally, like I wanted to write the kind of books that I wanted to write, and I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do with them, you know? And that's kind of why I do what I do because, you know, you've, I fucked around with bands when I was in high school, not anywhere near anything serious. 
I did one concert in my entire life, one show, and it was a rap show. And I rapped for a bunch of people because, you know, all my friends came out. And I was like, okay, cool. I checked that off the bucket list. But the problem with for me with music in general is kind of what you said, where it's like, how do you corral between like anywhere from two to 15 people to all get together and agree to do this one thing seems impossible. It's yeah, it's a, it's a huge pain in the ass. And like, since we're still so close to the suburbs, the Chicago suburbs, I still play with, um, with two bands out there. And then I have practice with a Milwaukee band that I just joined. That's tomorrow. So it's like, it's still, I'm still playing this game of like trying to, schedule all of these people together and it's just kind of a nightmare man it's a lot it's a lot easier to just you know like email me your book and i will work on it at my leisure and i don't have to schedule anything with you to do it you know or like if i'm working on my own book i can do it on my own time whatever um but yeah trying to and like these other people like we're getting older you know so like some of them are married some of them are getting married they have kids it's like impossible but, um, oh, dude! Once the kids happen, to... it's it's a, that's a wrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my buddy that I play in now, his kid is actually here. Him, him and his uh, and his ex wife split up, so they the kid doesn't live in Illinois, but uh, he's in Illinois right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, should I should probably go see him. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now you had mentioned about your uh, new book coming out. You want to talk a little bit about that? Um. No, I'm kind of tired of it. Not uh, yeah, I've been working on that book forever, man. And like I said, I like sat down after after it was after it was done, and I sent it away for edits. I sat down because I was curious. I was like, that took me almost six years to write. It's only like a 200 page book. Um, and I was like, how many musical projects have distracted me from this book? And it came out to something like 11. I was just like constantly like doing something. Um, So on the one hand, I am kind of tired of seeing it and hearing about it. Uh, On the other hand, there's this huge weight that's off my shoulders. I kept telling myself in the middle of writing it, like, I can just stop writing this. I can start a new thing and get that thing done fast. But I'm like, if I don't finish this, I'm not going to finish the next one. So it was like once once this book got to where it's at now, it should be out in, I think, two weeks. Um, Looking at my calendar now. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's out in two weeks, but uh, w- now that it's gotten to this point, I feel this like kind of floodgate where I'm like, oh no, I know now. I, I've proven to myself that I know how to write a book. This is how you do. It. You put one word after the other at, until the story is done. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I've got. I don't know. I'm like I started a new book uh, three or four weeks ago, and I'm like already halfway through the first draft of it. Um, so I'm pretty pretty happy with with that side of things uh as far as the book itself is concerned i think it's um i think it's kind of like a story that that i kind of had to tell to get it out of my system otherwise i it's kind of just up for readers man i don't know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and did you have any specific influences going into writing it yeah there's a there's this dude patrick dewitt you ever heard of him i have yeah sisters brothers yeah, yeah, his uh, uh, John C. Riley bought the movie rights. That I don't know if you saw. That's supposed to be coming out this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, his book before that, Ablutions, Notes for a Novel. It's all second person narrative, 
present tense and I eat that shit up like mm-hmm. nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a huge influence. Uh, Palinuk, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed to say, has been a huge influence on my writing. Um, but it was Ablutions for sure was like the the most specific. Like there were points in time where I had to like pull back and be like, okay, are, is this influence or are you ripping the book off? Mm-hmm. So... Well, I mean, it's one of those things, too, where at the end of the day, you know, if you're ripping something off, I'm of the I'm at this point, man, uh, where I kind of the whole writing thing to me, I'm I'm just sort of like, I don't really care as long as I make something, you know. Uh, so like the idea of, of ripping off, it's it's interesting that you're that you're concerned, maybe not concerned about it. Right. Like you're just kind of thinking to yourself, oh, shit, you know, it's just a rip off or whatever. But it's an interesting concept, right? Because at the end of the day, it's sort of like what, um, you know, we're all sort of ripping shit off, right? Would you sure. Think that's accurate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think when you step back and, and you know said, oh, maybe not concerned. I think that it, that is how it is. I'm not I'm not really concerned with it, but it is always in the back of my mind, like what, like on a scale of one to ten how much of this is thievery and how much of this is flattery Mm -hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm kind of with you, man. Like it doesn't really matter. Like Mm -hmm. I don't think Patrick DeWitt's going to read my book. Mm -hmm. That would be awesome if he did, but I don't think he's going to. So it doesn't matter too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about just sort of writing in general and kind of like my current philosophy about writing. So Stay with me on this one because it's going to sound a little bit extreme, but I, I, I feel like it's it's the right – for me at least right now, it's the right way to think about stuff. So I was in Austin and I was having a beer with a friend and we were talking about writing and he was a horror writer who has now moved on to writing uh, romance books, right? And he's telling me about this romance book and he's like, you know, oh, it's about this woman and – she cheats on her husband or something and there's this weird love triangle going on and I'm listening and this guy is really excited about the characters that he's developed in this romance novel which to me is about as far from an interesting thing to write as there could be you know (laughs) I'm just like I could never do that but I'm listening to it and suddenly it all clicked in my head because it it's working for him and my first thought that flashed through my mind was that like oh this is really dumb but it's working for him, you know? And so I told him that I was like, this is all dumb. And he laughed and we were like, <laughs> and we were like, wait, but like, let's unpack this idea. Let's spread it out. It's like, this whole thing is dumb, right? So for me, uh, the act of r- imagining things, coming up with something in my head, putting words down on a page, and then telling people that they should give me money to read those words is if, when you break it down like that, it's absurd and dumb. It's, it's really silly. It yeah. really is. It's hard to, it's kind of hard to, I don't know. I'm going to sound, I'm going to sound a little cynical when I say this, but it's, and, and this, I'm saying this for lack of having better words right now, but it's, um, it's hard to justify mm-hmm. doing that. I, I find a, I find it hard to, to justify like, like, cool, man, I wrote this story down that, like, you probably will not relate to as much as I did. There's there's almost no way in hell that anybody's going to read a, read a book about an alcoholic and be, like, super excited about it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty much only other alcoholics that are going to be stoked on that book. Sure, yeah. Uh, 
But at the same time, uh, I, I don't know, man. You can say the same thing about like William S. Burroughs, and yeah. now he's a celebrated figure in in the lit community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, and then and then there's the matter of like going home for holidays and like having to explain what you're doing to your parents. And they, oh yeah, they don't yeah. get it. They're ne- they're, well, they're never going to, you know. No, like, my family like is even though I made a living doing this for a while. I have a day job now, but for a while I made a living doing it. I would go and explain it to them, and it was always just a matter of when are you going to get a real job that has <laughs> real. Th- and uh, you know, my my punk rock side was like never i'm never and now i'm working nine to five and i'm like it's cool it's chill but to kind of go back to like that dumb idea so like i guess at the end of the day it's like it's not not really any dumber than most things that we do but i think conceptualizing of it is dumb helps me because it takes a little bit of the pressure off i don't yeah i see a lot on social media in particular so here we go here's the social media can of worms i'm gonna crack that open (laughs) Uh, i see on social media a lot that people seem to think of novels and poetry and movies and music as indicators of some kind of spiritual social battle that's going on right now and i just i don't buy it and it doesn't really work for me and i get kind of stuck when i think about it that way because i'm like the most boring thing you can be right now which is just a straight cishet white male you know what i mean so like that's another thing too yeah absolutely yeah yeah sorry to interrupt no go for it man that uh so yeah you already have the concept of like of like this is silly and dumb that i'm that i'm doing this but it's even sillier and dumber knowing that i am by no means the very first like white drunk dude writing books <laughs> about being a white straight drunk dude you know yeah, yeah. Uh, so like definite definitely like interested in seeing more more books from the lgbtq community and and uh people of color um, and I'm, that's kind of the interesting thing to me about indie lit right now is, uh, that's where I'm finding that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not finding that stuff at Barnes and Noble. Not ever. really. Not really. And when you do, I think that the problem with what you're going to find in Barnes and Noble is just a matter of market concerns. So you're going to, how do I put this? Okay. So when you look at the YA section of a bookstore, for example, you find a ton of diversity because YA is kind of ahead of the curve on that, and I think it's because the the generation that's coming up is more concerned with that than the older generation. Um, but yeah, I think in indie lit, it's all those people who are kind of about our age who are also not like us, and it's hard for... Basically, it's hard for anybody to kind of get into Barnes & Noble unless you already have a network. And that's sort of the tricky thing about publishing in general is that there's all this claim to want black writers or gay writers or whatever, but then you don't see any black writers or gay writers in those particular fields, right? And it's because most of those folks, um, particularly black people, like don't exactly come up in the literary scene, you know? Like they don't have necessarily the connections that people who like specifically white people do. And I'm generalizing, of course. You can't really have this conversation without broadly generalizing. But But I do think you're right, man. I think that indie indie lit is where most of that is going down. And I, but I do think that um, to kind of go back to the idea of it all being dumb, it's like I was having really serious writer's block because I couldn't figure. Like I'm reading all this rhetoric online, and I'm thinking to myself, like, well, Jesus, 
does the world need a book by me? And if the answer, the answer is no, it doesn't. But the book, the world also doesn't really need books by anybody, you know? So to conceptualize it as a quote unquote dumb thing eases some of that pressure off. You know what I mean? Because I feel like, I don't know. I also think that online Twitter specifically, there's just a lot of performative stuff from white people uh, about like, you know, POC stuff. And it's like, well, but you're not willing to give up your seat. You know what I mean? Like somebody, somebody who's making fucking $8 million a year writing trash novels is telling everybody else to go read, you know, people of color. It's like, well, you, you, why not, why don't you just like give them your job? You know, yeah. if it's, if it's yeah. that, if it's that important to you, why is it on everybody else to fix this except for you? Sure. But that's yeah, my, that's I, my unpopular opinion anyway. I, I like, I like what you say about, conceptualizing it as dumb and silly and then that relieving the pressure of it um because i've noticed that in the in the book that i'm writing now like um i don't really read a lot of bizarro fiction but i'm super interested in it because i think like there, that's got to be like the most liberating style of writing like I, i've read I've, i previewed a book that was about a dude who like falls in love with a toaster oven mm-hmm like that's that's incredible man like there's like there's no no rules no pressure at all you can just like go wherever you want so like with the the book that that i've been writing lately i was trying to go in a more bizarro format and the more bizarro stuff i read the more i'm finding out that i'm not even close there's like still, still way more ground to cover but um but just making the story silly making the story as silly as you think the act of writing is Yep. also is a, is a liberation in itself. Right. And that's the, that's the other thing about the book that's coming out that I have coming out this month. Um, one of the other things, like I said, I was just like preoccupied with music and that's one reason it took me so long. But the other reason is that I treated that story like it was this really precious, fragile thing. And it really isn't. It's not like, a, I don't know, it's not like uh, everything is illuminated. You know, it's not like it's not like a literary novel. Uh, so it's yeah, I think I was uh, overly cautious with it. So like throwing that caution to the wind, A, is going to get you product sooner and it's going to give you something more interesting, I think. That's my that's kind of my theory right now. We'll test it. Yeah. Yeah. See how this book does. My little mantra while I'm writing is like everything is dumb, never apologize. I just, you know what I mean? Like I feel I feel that anything that because this might not have been exactly what you meant, but for me, my reticence to publish books is that, you know, I'm afraid that they might offend people. Uh, but I realized that if everything is dumb and it all doesn't really matter, if anybody gets mad at me, which they have on some Goodreads reviews, I get slammed for being insensitive or whatever. And it's like, yeah, just don't care about it. You know, just what's keep moving. The, what's the one you, you always talk about? Uh, people that don't like the swearing in the book <laughs> oh dude that's because yeah because that's that's following it to its logical conclusion right so you can have people who uh, sort of go after a book for being transphobic or homophobic or whatever which is bizarre to me because i don't really understand how a, a pile of 400 dead trees you know could could be uh could hate gay people right but um but you like you have that, but the, the the logical conclusion to that is that they are in almost the same camp as people who ding books for having too much bad language it's all just about words that people don't like it's like i bought 
people buy, would buy this book that I put out called Peckerwood, and they would be like, this has cussing in it. And I'm like, the word, the title is a slur. I don't know if yeah. you know that or not. But <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the other thing too is, uh, I was I was going to say books can't be transphobic or homophobic. I guess they can, but typically, like within the context that you're talking, it's not the book, and it's definitely not the writer. It's the character. That's that that's always seemed very obvious to me from like reading like Stephen King books when I was really young and like seeing these like these racist characters. You're not. We're not saying that you're supposed to sympathize with that character. That's mm-hmm. the, the point is the opposite of that. That's why they're such an ugly, awful character. Right, is, right. So you, so you can kind of like manipulate the reader into disliking that racist person and then hopefully all other racist people too, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, well, and it, I and think it, that's it, the point. Well, I think, that, I think that art in general is sort of – it acts as a – a cage for human beings worst impulses right so and i think art in general does that and i think that art that really purports to be some kind of moralistic thing i think that it's missing the entire point of what art is in general right so in a way you could make characters that are very racist and that that could sway a reader to not be racist but you can also just write a character that's racist and have no moral judgment about it whatsoever. I keep thinking of, um, there's a quote from David Lynch where he says, after you make a piece of art, everybody wants you to talk about it. And that's foolish because the art is the talking. And I kind of like that. I kind of like this sort of uh, amoral, like none of the, like not, it sounds like nihilism, right? But in a way, I feel like just kind of being exposed to grossness and evilness on a page in the safety of your home is in itself a worthwhile thing to undertake. Whether or not it sways you one way or another, I think being exposed to that, I think that's what that's what movies are, right? It's just it's exposing people to fears and lust and horrible things that they have boiling deep inside of them and a book gives them an opportunity to either see that reflected or on occasions see the complete opposite reflected it's just it's an empathy generator you know what i mean when you when you liken when you liken books or i guess art in general to like a cage for that kind of human ugliness are you saying it's like almost like a safe space for that ugliness to happen where it's not going to it's not going to get out and yeah i can see that that's a that's a good point yeah and i mean i just i kind of just feel like you know if like writing like your book about an alcoholic right It, it and he's he's a mean guy and all this kind of stuff it's like if that helps people choose not to drink then that's fantastic and, but I feel like that would almost be a byproduct because I feel like your book should exist because it's a good book. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I will, I will say that that was to, um, to deter people from drinking was definitely not the goal of the book yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like touching, touching on that quote that you mentioned, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the thing. It's like if it does deter people from drinking, then that's what they got out of the book fantastic otherwise 
They could be somebody who has like an awful drinking problem and find some form of relatability. And like, maybe that manifests in some kind of, um, uh, damn it. What's the word? Enabling kind of thing. Maybe that manifests as an, as an enabler, the book itself, uh, or maybe it's like you, you find this relatability and through that relatability, uh, you find some peace that allows you to come to terms with your problems, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, but we're talking about my book, but that could be damn near any book, any any good book anyway, any book worth its weight in the paper. Yeah, and I think that I think that it all comes down to the fact that you can't really control how any particular piece of entertainment is used. It's a lot like a hammer. You could use a hammer to build a house, or you could use it to bash somebody's skull in, and the artist can't really be responsible for how certain people use that thing that you put out into the world. There might be some moral questions as to whether it's a good idea to write books at all, considering they could be used for evil, if you will, but I'm not. I would, I would fight that argument. Me too. Yeah, me too. I would would do, I would fight that argument, seeing the merit in the argument, but being so selfish, like, no, I want to write books. I'm going to fight (laughs) you. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I do think that. Fuck, I'm trying not to lose my train of thought here. Um, we were talking about this. Oh, right, right, right. I was going to talk like about you know Marilyn Manson, for example. Like, oh, I, I just recently got back into Marilyn Manson, and I'm really happy about it. It's funny. Yeah, uh, me too. I just been, wanted to throw that out there. I've been revisiting all the bands from when I was a kid, like Corn, even Limp Biscuits. Yeah. Like, fuck, like there's yeah, no, there's yeah. serious nostalgia factor there for me. But you go to Marilyn Manson, and when the Columbine shooters uh, did what they did, Marilyn Manson was kind of blamed, like his because they loved his music, and he was sort of blamed as this sort of boogeyman yeah. for what drove them to do that. But like me as a kid who was kind of a loner and didn't, you know, really identify with very many people. Marilyn Manson was one of my heroes. Like he was one of my idols and like it helped me. So really it's like six in one hand, a half dozen in the other. It's like, you can't really say that art is any one per it's a lot of things, you know, that, that, that the six to one thing that you just said, mm-hmm. I've never heard anybody, but my parents say that that's, <laughs> It's kind of I say that all the time to people, and they're like, "What the hell does that mean?" And I'm like, "I don't even think it makes that much sense, but I know I know what it means." No, that's yeah, that's that's totally true. Uh, it's like that Blades of Glory quote. It's, it's like nobody knows what it means, but it's provocative. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely true, though. About um, like you, the same thing with Marilyn Manson quote-unquote inspired these kids to shoot up the school but they but Marilyn Manson helped you find some kind of meaning or some kind of uh something to relate to uh going same thing you said about the hammer you can bash somebody's skull in or you could build a house you're not and that that's something too that I I was kind of concerned about with my book is I was worried that when it came out it there might be some kind of backlash for I don't know one thing or another, like maybe the dude is like, uh, maybe somebody doesn't like the fact that he's kind of like emotionally abusive to the, the, the girlfriend character in the book. Maybe somebody doesn't like the fact that he's an alcoholic. Maybe they don't like the fact that he meets the mistreats his employees. Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, well, I'm not going to not publish it. 
Like, I'm still going to publish it, and I'm just going to, if somebody's upset about it, then I didn't write the book for them. I wrote it for somebody else, apparently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think when you're writing a book, it all comes down to just, it doesn't really matter how people feel about something. It all comes down to, in my opinion, um, I could relate it to film, maybe. So let's say you have a character who's very acerbic and vile and, you know, hateful. Um, That could be likened to the use of, let's say, a strobe light in a film. I don't know. Have you ever seen Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void? Where no. Okay, so it's this movie where this guy dies at the beginning. It's all first-person POV. And when he dies, the strobe light starts flickering, right? And mm-hmm. after the strobe light flickers, he comes back and he's a ghost and he's sort of watching everybody go about their lives after he's dead. It's a very psychedelic movie, very cool movie. But like, So if we compare a character being a dickhead to a strobe light, it's like you can use that strobe light to an effect, an artistic effect, to where you're you're creating a feeling in a reader's head, but you wouldn't mm-hmm. want a whole movie of strobe light, right? Because you just have an epileptic fit, right? <laughs> so it's not really in how it's received by people, I think, but it's in how it's in service to the art. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was going to... Uh, say uh go back to sort of like the booze thing so are you are you a drinker right now or no i'm literally drinking right now yeah Oh, okay cool cool i've i've found i've found i was talking to a buddy of mine actually before you called and i was like should i go get beer because it occurred to me that i've spent i'm i'm pretty good like if i'm if i'm not like if i'm not doing anything social i'm just like you know sitting in the office and i'm working on a book or i'm watching tv with my girlfriend or whatever I don't, I don't really have to drink, but if I, if I go out and I play a show and I know I have to like talk to a band that I'm going to play with, or like I'm going to a reading and I have like, there's just, you got to take the edge off. And I know that that's, I know that's a crutch. I know it's not great, but should have seen me a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what else to say to that. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm right there. I'm right there with you, dude. I mean, I've had, I've had my issues with alcohol over the years and I think, I mean, what's working for me personally is, you know, I had beers last night. I had like three of these tall boys. They sell them here in the gas station. They're 25 ounces. So I had three of those, which is basically a six pack. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I went through a period of time uh, about a month ago where I went, you know, six weeks without drinking. And then I had a few here, a few there. And I've never really dove back in and like really binged like I did before. And then, uh, you know, this last week I had one... Uh, on Monday, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, nothing, and then of course yesterday was Friday, so I had one. But I feel like, for me at least, like just taking long breaks like that help. But I feel like for me, it's like, I don't know if this resonates with you, but it's like a snowball effect where if I start doing it too much, eventually I'll be back to the point where I'm killing like six of those every night, and that's when yeah. it get, that's when it gets bad. Yeah, that that definitely hits home uh, with me pretty hard for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and yeah, it, it is just about, well, I got, I got a, the, the singer of one of the bands that I play for, um, is like huge into mindfulness meditation. Mm. Um, so a byproduct of that is like hearing about it all the time at band practice, uh, which doesn't bother me. I, I find it interesting and I find it helpful <clears throat> and I've dabbled myself, but that's, that's one of the things that he talks about is, is, is like, you know, I'm not, I don't really drink at practice anymore because I'm, I'm kind of mindful of like the fact that I don't necessarily like the way that it tastes. I don't necessarily like being like foggy headed, you know, uh, he likes to be clear minded. I, I get that. 
for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so I try to like try to take that. Well, I try to take that concept of mindfulness everywhere I go. Yeah. But especially within the context of, of consumption. Yeah. No, totally, man. I, I do the Headspace app, so I get I do the mindfulness meditation as well, and it's it's really been helpful. Another thing that I've been reading recently is a book called Feeding Your Demons by this woman whose name, unfortunately, I cannot pronounce because it's a Tibetan, I believe. But it's this uh, Buddhist concept called Cha, which originated in the 11th century, where there was this uh, woman monk. I'm going to sound really fucking sexist, where every time I mention a woman, <laughs> I'm like, some woman, some broad. I, I can't, I don't even know who she was. Anyway, apologies for that. But so, th <laughs> so there's this, there's this monk who... Um, her village is attacked by these demons, right? And so what she does is she's meditating and she floats up to the ceiling, floats through the wall, goes outside and like turns herself into food. And the demons eat all this food. And then once they're satiated, they leave. And she turns back into a person and begins this practice called chub, right? Pretty far out. But like the concept of it, and I'm only about a quarter of the way through, so I'm not exactly sure what it's doing, but it's a compelling idea to me, is that instead of locking those demons away, you actually, using meditation and visualization, you personify your particular um, addictions, depression, anxiety, you personify them as demons, and you allow them to like have free reign to take whatever symbolically they want from you right like imagine turning your body into like honey or something and the demon comes by and like eats it all and somehow subconsciously that keeps <clears throat> them from actually having an effect on your actual life pretty far out that kind of that kind of sounds like the just the idea of like sitting with discomfort too you know which yeah. is the that's like the that was like the very first thing when i started dabbling in mindfulness meditation and I don't have like a practice or anything, so I always feel really stupid talking about it. Like a, I kind of feel like a poser, honestly, talking about it. To use a word that hasn't been used since high school, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was like one of the very first things that I picked up on was like sitting with discomfort. And you you learn it through the. I was using uh, the uh, Ten Percent Happier app after reading the. Well, I listened to the book, the audio book. Um, but like the very like the very first thing is like sit with it with, if your nose is itchy just let it itch just experience that itch and be uncomfortable and like know what it is to be uncomfortable and and be okay with being uncomfortable and like like taking your your feelings and your emotions and your thoughts and separating them from your physical body because they're not the same that like it when I first heard that, when somebody's like, you have to separate yourself from your thoughts, I'm like, I am my thoughts. But no, you're not. You know, you figure out pretty quickly and it becomes this like kind of elementary truth. Um, so like I kind of, I always have that kind of thought process in the back of my mind. But like I say, I'm, I don't really like, I have a, well, you can't see it, but I have a meditation pillow over here and I use it maybe once a month mm -hmm. if I'm if I'm doing well, um, I would love to use it daily. I should use it daily. I do not. Yeah. Well, it's just one of those things. I mean, you get to it when you get to it. I feel like you have to be ready to do pretty much anything, whether it's meditation, getting a job, writing a book, uh, picking up l lacrosse, whatever. You have sure. to be in a place where you're ready to do that. And I, it's so funny. And this ties into kind of what you're talking about and what we're talking about, about 
our thoughts not being, uh, or like sitting with discomfort, I guess I should say. And sitting with discomfort and also the effect that books have and how sometimes it's not exactly what you would think. If I'm being honest, a lot of the stuff that sticks with me that has sort of built my personality, which now that I think about it, this might completely invalidate my point about art not mattering in this way, comes from (laughs) books that I read when I was a kid, you know? So Goosebumps and like Star Wars books and shit like that. And whenever I feel discomfort or I'm in pain, I think back to this uh, Star Wars book that was written for children that was like a prequel to um, The Phantom Menace. This was when The Phantom Menace came out, and I was super stoked and, uh, you know, eventually very disappointed. Um, but in, in the lead-up to The Phantom Menace, they had these books about Qui-Gon Jinn uh, and his sort of, you know, his adventures with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And there's this line in there that Qui-Gon says where he he's fighting droids with his lightsaber or some shit, and he gets shot in the arm or something. And he, and he thinks to himself, he's like, thank you to my body for allowing me to know that my arm is, is in pain or something like that. Some corny shit. But I, I think about that every time I feel discomfort. I think about Qui-Gon Jinn in a YA Star Wars novel from when I was 11 years old. So take from that what you will, I guess. That That's interesting. And this is actually going to bring me into a topic that I kind of wanted to touch base on. Hell but yeah. so you, you say that you say that when you're experiencing discomfort, you go back to a star Wars quote, essentially to shorten what you said. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing too, but with a line from revenge of the Sith, when uh, they're boarding at the very beginning of the movie, they're boarding the ship that Count Dooku's on and they get trapped in like some like force field thing. And it's Anakin and Obi-Wan and, um, they're like, what Obi-Wan's like, what do we do now? And Anakin just sits down like in a lotus position. He's like, I say patience. I'm like, oh man, yeah. He's just always like, if you're uncomfortable, just wait. It'll go away. Yeah. Um, but, but that reminded me, like you you and I have kind of a lot in common because you were an army brat, right? Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm also an army brat. You live in El Paso now. I lived in El Paso when we lived on Fort Bliss when I was oh, a kid. okay, cool, cool. So there's like there's a a couple I'm sure there's some other things that I've picked up on but there's a couple parallels there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for I'll, sure. It's, it's been a long, long time since I've been to El Paso though. Yeah, I think uh, growing up as an army brat because I'm the first person in my family to not go into the military. Well, Yo, not the, same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, so not the first, but like it was kind of expected that I would go that I would go into the military. Yeah. And I, I think, man, it just keeps bringing me back to all this. After saying at the beginning of this podcast that art doesn't matter, all the the main reason I didn't go into the military was like listening to System of a Down and being like, <laughs> oh, yeah, fuck the imperialist war machine, you know, which I still kind of think to this day. Um, but yeah, growing up in a military family and around military people, uh, I think it affected my, my mind, see if this holds up for you as well, to where now it's kind of hard for me to sort of get on board with um i don't know maybe some more progressive thing i'm i'm really super far on the left right but it's hard for me i think i grew up around people who were super conservative and uh the military in general is sort of a conservative area so i'm sort of able to to see that does that is does that ring true for you as well like are your family conservative people and stuff absolutely they're getting better in their age, but yeah. But, uh, oh, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. 
No, I was I was just saying, uh, yeah, I, I I see the same thing. But as far as my my direct relationship with my family, I can see them going just a, just a smidge to the left. Like every couple of years, they're getting just a slight bit better, just by proxy of having their artist son <laughs> tell them, you know, call them on their shit when yeah. they have shit to be called on. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's really funny because my mom has always been a big time churchgoer, what have you. And but we've all also always had a really close relationship. And so I've had depressions that have lasted for entire years, you know, and, you know, the whole everything that goes along with that suicide attempts over drinking stuff like that. And um, so my mom is obviously always very, very worried about me. And so when I finally found, you know, magic mushrooms, and found out that those really, really helped my depression. Uh, it was kind of interesting to see my mother go like, hey, if that's what it works, she's like, I'm pro-mushroom. You know, like the most anti-drug person ever. She's like, go for it, dude. So I think that there's some there's some good that we can bring to our conservative uh, loved ones. Sure. Yeah, well, and that's one thing, you know, with the, with the inauguration of Donald Trump, there's a lot of fear, and I mean, rightly so. Sure. It's kind of a scary motherfucker. Um, but it was, but it kind of manifested in this hateful way where people are like disowning their parents, and I'm like, well, I don't know, man. I can sit down and have a have a conversation, you know. Like we got to, you have to be able to like sit down and unpack a concept. You can't just be like, you're wrong. I don't, know, I don't know why I have to say this, you know, like we should all know that there has to be a discussion with everything. So the, when, when you just like cut ties, especially with somebody like your parents or a brother or a sister or what have you, um, you're just perpetuating that division. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's, I think there's a huge, a huge merit for, for people bringing those kind of left leaning ideas into a, into a conservative household. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's totally true, and it has it sort of manifests itself. You see in these kind of uh, online Twitter things where, like, recently, I think it was today or yesterday, like Chuck Wendig got kicked off of Star Wars. Um, I don't. Did you hear about this? No, I don't know who that is. Oh, okay. Is that so, somebody from the newer movies, the spinoffs and stuff? Well, he's a he's a guy who has written um, sort of uh, these thriller supernatural novels. And he eventually got hired to write the Star Wars book, uh, like Aftermath and Empire's End. And uh, he started writing The Shadow of Vader. And he got James Gunn, essentially. Like, conservative people all complained to Marvel and got him kicked off of this thing. And uh, and it's kind of, like, emblematic, though, of sort of what we're talking about. Because I want to be careful here because I don't, I don't think that it's, like, I don't think that Chuck Wendig is the bad guy here. But... It is kind of one of those things where his whole Twitter presence is like calling uh, conservative people like fuck boys and, you know, go eat your own shit and fuck you and fuck Trump and fuck like all this kind of like really harsh rhetoric, you know, and it felt in a way like sort of chickens coming home to roost. I don't think he should have been taken off the project, obviously, because I believe in fucking free speech. But at the same time, it's like you if you put that energy out into the world, like with your families or with even strangers online where you're just telling people to go fuck themselves all the time because they disagree with you. It's like, how do you – has that ever worked in the history of ever? Right. 
You know? Right. Yeah. That you you said the the thing about negative energy, and I almost like slammed my hand on my desk in agreement. Um, yeah, it does. It's not gonna bode well for you if if you're like you say, just putting negative energy in the world. Like I know, I know it sounds cliche, and it's like it's like a homemade sign on every Pinterest account, but the what you put into the world is what you get back. You know, mm-hmm. like you. What a, another another like more Buddhist idea that comes from my bandmate that practices all this mindfulness is like approach everything with compassion. You don't have to like agree with somebody. You don't even have to like them, but at least try to approach things with some amount of compassion. That's the only way you're going to get through with anybody. And you don't. But the other thing about that though is that that's an incredibly taxing way to approach disagreements. It's the only useful way, but it's also hard as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to pick and choose your battles. Like who is, whose relationship, you know, like, I don't know, I got like in a conversation with my dad about prison reform. And I was like, this relationship is worth me spending a lot of time being compassionate. It, it is worth me getting to an end here because I respect this man and we, different opinion on something that I think is very fundamental. So I need to figure out where that disagreement's coming from. And we're going to have to sit here for a while and kill a six pack and like figure out where this is coming from. Um, you're not going to be able to do that with, with every, with every proud boy on the street, you know, like you're just going to have to like ignore them and hope, hope against hope that somebody else feels that kind of compassion toward them and that they can get through to them. You're not going to be able to save everybody. No, not... you're, you're not, you're not, you're not captain, save a proud boy, right? Like it's, 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 it's not <laughs> your, not your fucking responsibility. That's the new comic book that Marvel's putting out. Yeah, exactly. Captain, proud boy. <laughs> it's just, and it is one of those things too, where I just, I have this sneaking suspicion that the internet is doing more harm than good when it comes to stuff like this, because people no. think, yeah, I know. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you know, people go on there and they, they do spew this kind of negativity and it's the classic, you know, keyboard warrior thing where it's like, yeah, you're behind a computer. You feel like you can say anything that you want to people. And I think that you probably get this having grown up in a military family. And I certainly do growing up in a military family and living primarily in the set, actually 100. I've always lived in the South. Portland was the first time I ever lived outside of the South. And that is that while the internet is not real, people from the South, take fighting words extremely seriously in a way that people from the coasts do not so the first time that i visited new york city i was on a subway and i saw somebody tell a guy like go fuck like the guy coughed without covering his mouth and this other dude was like if you don't cover your fucking mouth i'm gonna put my foot down your throat and i was like that's amazing because where i'm from those were like those two would have scrapped after that you know and so i think that there's this just sort of cultural miscommunication where people from the coasts and like liberal elites if you want to use that word use this sort of language this negative aggressive fighting language and the way that that's perceived and internalized in the south is is, is, you know oh we're gonna fight okay well we'll yeah it's uh it's uh it's pretty straightforward you know if you're using hate speech then i or not hate speech if you're using mean speech then i know that you want to fight Right. That's actually that's pretty interesting. I never really considered that. I was born in uh, Kentucky, and I lived there. Was it Fort Campbell? Uh, it, yeah, of course it was Fort Campbell. Yeah. 
I lived born, there too. Born in Campbell, Kentucky, and then when I was like seven or eight, we moved out to El Paso. Um, and then, well, yeah, I guess El Paso would be south. But the point that I'm trying to get at is like after El Paso, I was just pretty much in the north. So I never really noticed that. And like, obviously, it, well, we're talking about 1998, and I'm eight years old. I'm not sitting on, I'm obviously not sitting on Facebook having internet wars with people. Um, there was a, a lot of time spent in central Illinois, which is still. That's the south. I, is that considered the south? Not geographically, but culturally, definitely. Yes. Think, okay. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. So that would be that would be the only that was like sixteen to twenty four mm-hmm. was what Sika, Illinois is the name of the town, um, and just yeah, I guess southern minded. I don't I don't want to generalize the south. They were stupid. The people yeah. in Sika were stupid. I'll generalize the people of Watsika, but not the entire south. Uh-huh. Um, but that's. That's kind of where, where what you say makes sense. Where like if I'm in if I'm in like if I'm north of Chicago and I say something on the internet, it's I just said it on the internet and people will just argue back on the internet. If I'm in Watsika and I say something mean on the internet, they're gonna find me at Walmart. Yeah, yeah. And then, we're, and then somebody's catching hands, and it's probably gonna be me because right. I'm. A, artist i don't fight (laughs) yeah exactly that brings up another really interesting point i've been thinking about that video online of three people getting their shit stomped in by 30 proud boys and it got me i'm really happy to say i haven't seen that yeah it's probably not worth watching it's upsetting um sounds upsetting yeah but i was thinking about this and i was thinking about the whole punch nazis meme and i like it as a rhetorical device I like what it a lot of these um rhetorical strategies whether it's punch nazis or whatever they work on the level of being rhetorical devices that you can pass around within a community to up morale and make people feel good about themselves but they work less well as publicly pronounced statements of intent because our group as you just said are artists and we don't know how to fight so the punch Nazis <laughs> I, thing is a, it's a fun meme. It's fun to post the picture from that old comic book of Captain America punching Hitler in the face, yeah. but it's a good one. It is a good one. But you know, the people who I grew up with spent their entire lives fighting, getting beaten up, beating people up. They, uh-huh. they punch like absolute freight trains. They are monsters. And it's like the people who, talk sh- not to again not to ge- well fuck it i'll generalize but like the people like the liberal writers in new york who are like balding at, at 30 and have like giant beards and big thick horn rim glasses and want to like talk about punching nazis online it's like if you meet my buddies from oklahoma that's not gonna go well for you so just as a realistic strategy or as something that we should do i just don't think it's a really smart idea yeah, I I hear within the vacuum of Facebook, pretty much just Facebook. I don't notice this kind of shit on Instagram, um, and I don't use Twitter. But within the vacuum of Facebook, I see a lot of like ultra leftists posting memes, like the Homer Simpson one, where he is outside of the bush wearing like a Bernie Sanders shirt and then he backs into the bush and he comes out in like Antifa gear Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
like you say, I like that as a rhetorical device, but I've met you people and I know most of you don't know how to fire a weapon. Yeah. Like, like coming from a military background or a military family anyway, I've used a gun and I'm not too stoked on the idea of like using it casually. No, me neither. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of scary. And I feel like most people on the left forget the fact that like they're, they're, their their sword is their pen it's supposed to be their pen um and then you know you'll get a lot of like extremist leftists that are that would call me like a pacifist or like a a centrist and i don't really feel that way but i also don't care mm-hmm. what they call me so long as so long as i don't have people on the right being like oh you're one of us as long as that doesn't happen i don't really care who disagrees with me <clears throat> in that particular regard anyway yeah i think that yeah, I, I I agree with you, man. I think that it's 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 difficult to have uh, nuanced opinions right now because everything is so polarized. Yes. Because I was thinking about I was thinking about this thought experiment in my head yesterday because I was thinking about the Kanye West and Donald Trump meeting, which was a bizarre and insane farce of a thing, and I felt like I was living in the fucking Twilight Zone. Was, um, was that the first time they met? No, they've met before, but I think that was the first time they did it in such a press conference sort of talking points way. But, okay, so what got me thinking about this is that whole exchange is insane, and there's tons of problems with it. But also, at the end of the day, you have a, a black man talking to a law and order president about prison reform, right? He legitimately talked to Trump, like, hey, we got to fix these prisons. He said abolish the 13th Amendment, which is wrong, but... You do have to amend the 13th Amendment because it's what allows for slavery as long as it's in a prison system. So he was talking to him a lot about prison reform, and that's a good thing. Whether or not anything will come of that, I think it's not cynical to say probably not. Um, I think that's pretty realistic. It's pretty realistic. But like, So I was thinking about it in terms of that and how even though the whole thing was completely ridiculous, nobody on the left really felt like they maybe were allowed to say like, hey – he is talking about prison reform, and that's good. I'm going to cherry-pick that good thing out of this shit pile. And so it started making me think about this thought process, like what if tomorrow Trump emerged from his fucking gold-embossed cave and decided, you know what? We're going to completely reform the prison system. We're going to put socialized health care in. We're going to – you know, he did all these things that we wanted. Let's say hypothetically, okay? Would we be able – to praise that or would you see people start to try to twist that into something fucked up you would have uh, i don't want i'm way that was way too quick for me to speak to that but <laughs> my my opinion is that you would immediately see people try to twist that into something fucked up they would say something to the effect of donald trump is just trying to win the black vote and that's that would probably be true if 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 that did happen, he would probably be doing it as more or less a PR stunt, mm-hmm. and that's bad. But sometimes you can do good things for bad reasons. Unfortunately, you know. I mean, now now we don't. Now we're not allowed to hate this one thing that we have collectively hated with all this uh, vehemence. But at least something good would hypothetically be coming from it. That's exactly it. And I think back to shows like The Wire, for example, where the whole point of The Wire is that you can never get what you want politically 
without getting your hands dirty, whether that's through like, you know, the drug dealers murdering people or politicians having to make compromises to their core ethics in order to get something passed through. Uh, everything always ends up looking a little bit messy. And I think that there's too much of a focus on people saying the right words and acting the right way rather than the actual good things themselves happening. Because personally, I don't care how this shit happens. If, you know, if we stop murdering people uh, in the Middle East and we reform prisons and there's, you know, peace on the Korean peninsula, I don't care if it's Donald Trump who does that. That doesn't matter yeah. to me. Um, yeah. And I will say that those are all good things, and I don't feel the need to qualify it by saying, but Donald Trump is a very bad person, blah, 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 because that's all weird tribal like we have to make sure that the person who's been excised is continuously excised and you never say anything good about it's kind of like when you i don't know when you break up with a, a, a girl and you're you're just like you don't want anybody to say anything nice about her no she was terrible she was awful to me or whatever maybe that's me yeah <laughs> but like no, no, I, I, I know what you mean um yeah i remember i remember like as as news spread that he was going to win the election you saw a lot of people panicking about it. And again, I don't think that they were wrong. I don't think panic might have been not the best way to go, but I don't think that you're you're wrong and I don't think you're wrong in being cautious anyway. Um, and I think I might have saw like one thing where somebody was like, I don't think he's gonna do too great as a president, but I hope he does. And I'm like, that's probably the mentality that we need to have. Right. I also don't think he's going to listen to anything Kanye West said. But if he did, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna throw that baby out with the bathwater. Right. You know, yeah, you have if if prison does get reformed, like that's awesome. That's great news. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess I guess we're allowed our cynicism too in in the face of all the evidence that shows that it probably won't work out. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, after all that talk, it feels a little weird to cycle back to talking about uh, record labels and things like that. But be <laughs> but before we go, I do want to talk to you about continuing to work with this record label and kind of co-releasing books with that. So if you could tell us a little bit about your uh, strategy, your thoughts on, on, on what exactly it is you're doing and how you're kind of moving forward with that idea. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, so the strategy is completely non-existent. Cool, I like it. There is no strategy. Um, the only, the closest thing to a strategy that we've come up with is we we officially launched on September. We didn't do this on purpose. We officially launched on September 11th. Nice. We we launched and then we were like, shit. You know what day it is? That doesn't look good. Anyway, we launched on September 11th, and then my book comes out this month with an album and then next month will be hopefully another book with an album and then the third month december we have another book so the only strategy right now is like trying to do this parallel with albums and books but we're also kind of like if it doesn't work it doesn't work we're not gonna cool. force it yeah. um so like the big thing with polynerve is i just want to like the same thing we did with berserk records i just want to put out records that i want to hear and I want to put out books that I want to read. Um, and I'm fortunate in that the guy that I work with is kind of like taking over that musical side of things, which leaves me freed up to learn about 
all the things that I don't know about small presses. You know, like, I don't know. I'm, it's been like a huge pain in the ass, like properly formatting books. I'm learning that. Um, but yeah, we have, uh, we have the book that's supposed to come out next month is like, it's like 63 pages, so super short with these like vignette short stories. And I, we like put it on like white text on black pages. Because I, I just was, like, interested. You know? That's I'm cool. Like, I like that. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It was, like, something, like, it was, like, a little childishly punk rock, but it was something that I wanted to see in the world. So that's what I'm doing. Um, and then the book in December is by a, I think he's a rapper, and he runs a hip-hop label, but his name's Luke Sick. Okay. Um, he writes, he, he, when he submitted his novel, he called it, a weird crime story so i was like oh it's probably like a crime novel and that's great but like they're stealing weird shit instead of money mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i was way off uh there's like there's like a there's like a like this anarchist compound that is run by these ninja assassin <laughs> babes like it's it's really cool it's a trip god shows up and everything yeah. um so yeah that book will be coming out but yeah, as far as strategy, like the only real strategy is to take the art that we want to see and put it somewhere that you know, like the big, like big five or uh, or like major labels are not going to put these these writers and musicians out. So we have to. The other thing too is anybody that's listening will note that our very first book is my book. So it's like I wrote a book. And I it kind of pulled the black flag thing where I didn't want to wait for somebody to print my book. I was like, I'll just print it. But that means that I have to now print other people's books. I'm not going to start a small press that just puts out John E. Swan books. That sounds super narcissistic. And while I am narcissistic, I don't want to sound narcissistic. So so it's it's just about like. I'm like starting something where I can where I can put my books and have and, and be absolutely positive that they will be standing in good company. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just I just want like the spine of my book to sit next to the spines of books that I like. So the best way to do that is to find those books that I like and publish them. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what we're doing. That's Polynerve. Yeah. Well, that's uh, you know, it's what I do with Broken River too, man. It's like Sure. I- why 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 bother doing anything like I I publish cool shit and I write cool shit and I don't and I just just prefer to keep all the money. So. Oh yo, well I have this soapbox. Um, one of the I hate doing this. One of the one of the things that Polynerve is doing is an anthology of short fiction, so crime, transgressive, bizarro, micro and flash fiction. I guess we'll dabble in horror. We're doing an anthology. It's called uh, New Drink for the Chase. If there's anybody listening that wants to submit to it, polynervemedia at gmail.com. Please Perfect. submit. We're dying for stories for that, uh, specifically from from female authors, POC, LGBTQ. Um, there's a lot of, as we touched base on earlier, there's a lot of white dudes with cases of beer in their fridge that have stories. But let's find the other stories. Cool. That's a perfect note to end on. All of that will be included in the show notes as well as any other links you'd like me to include. So, hey, John, thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, man. It's good talking to you.